the title of this message this morning is, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? John chapter 9, starting in verse 1, as he passed by, that's talking about the Lord Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning and we thank you that great is thy faithfulness. God, we're grateful today that we could sing about your goodness and your love for us and the fact that you forgive us of our sins and that we can be washed and made white as snow. God, we're grateful for John chapter 9, and I pray as we dig into this chapter about this story of this man born blind and what he came to see in the Lord Jesus Christ and what an impact that had in his life and in the lives of those around him, that we would see your glory on display and your work being accomplished in us. And so we pray that you would help us to learn these things and to apply these things by your Spirit to our life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, why do bad things happen to good people? You've all heard this question, and if you're being honest this morning, you've probably asked that same question in the recesses of your own heart. Even though maybe you've been taught well on this subject, it still kind of comes up from time to time, and we say, why in the world did that have to happen? I mean, we've all been there, and at the surface, it seems like a very authentic and a genuine question. And at the outset, it may also sound as if we're making an accusation instead of asking an honest question. The logic goes like this, bad things shouldn't happen to good people, should they? I mean, isn't it only fair that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people? That's how we would logically think. And many times this question is asked out of heartache and out of frustration. I mean, who can explain why a godly husband and father might drop dead of a heart attack? Or a godly wife and mom might be diagnosed with terminal breast cancer? Or who among us can understand why a whole family could die in a fatal car crash while on their summer vacation? Or why a child could drown even though left unattended only for a few seconds? Who can make sense of the rampage of public shootings such as the likes of Las Vegas last fall or earlier this year, the shootings at that high school in Florida that killed so many high school students? Why the heart-wrenching stories of murder-suicides in otherwise normal households? Why would a God who is all good, all-knowing, and all-powerful allow bad things to happen to good people? This question is sometimes asked out of innocence from people who have a genuine desire to try and understand what seems impossible to understand. I mean, there, there's books written on this topic. Larry King has hosted uh, evenings on CNN on this topic, why would things like this happen? And sometimes it's just these questions are asked by people who've just suffered a great deal. And no matter how many times that question has been answered, they just are intimately acquainted with grief or loss. They ask in shock, how could God let this happen? Why wouldn't God allow this to happen to someone else? 
Why me, Lord? I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to walk with you. Why would you let this happen? Just consider the Jewish Holocaust or the painful death and murder of a child or of a kind, gentle person who faces immense pain. The critic of the Christian life would readily say that God must not be all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. Those things seem to contradict each other. I mean, if He's really all-knowing and all-powerful, then how can He be good if these bad things still happen in our world? To the materialist or the atheist who would deny the existence of God, life has no eternal meaning. It has no real purpose. They believe that death is all there is, or life is all there is, and then at death it's all over, right? We simply decay and become food for worms. To those who don't believe in God, pain has no meaning other than what it is. Pure, unadulterated suffering without any redeeming purpose. But for the Christian, the truth is life has a purpose, and in life, pain is inevitable. But the good news for the Christian today is that pain does have a purpose. Well, no person or Christian desires to experience more pain, and no person in their right mind welcomes suffering and wants more of it. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that in this life, there will be pain, and there will be suffering, and there will be difficult days ahead. The Bible actually makes it quite clear that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ does not guarantee that only good things will happen to you in this life. As a result of sin, which entered the garden, we now live in a fallen world. And while it may be true that being a Christian doesn't promise you a life protected from all pain and suffering, it does promise you a life in heaven where there is no more pain and no more tears. You see, the ultimate question of why do we have evil in the world may not be answered for you until you reach heaven's uh, gates. And as you enter into the presence of the Lord, you'll have a a different perspective. I mean, I appreciate the promise that we read in 1 Peter 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 that I've read, read so many times when I'm struggling with this, just to be reminded that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Which means this, on your worst day and in your darkest hour, you can know as a Christian you have heaven. And you can know there's a day coming when it will all make sense, when justice will be rendered and when those who are in Christ will be saved. When you ask the question of why does evil happen and why do we have pain, you must remember that eternity makes a difference in how we interpret pain. Pain is a gift that awakens us to our need for God. Without pain and heartache, we might be not even asking these very questions. If everything's going well in your life, We tend not to ask these hard questions. It's only when we're experiencing the pain that we start struggling with this. And God shows us a way through the pain when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ who suffered and died at Calvary so that we can be forgiven of our sins. 
so that we can be strengthened in our trials and that we can have the life-giving hope of heaven. There are more verses in the Bible that prepare us for pain and suffering than there are promising us a comfortable life. There are some pastors who would promise material wealth, earthly success, and all kinds of physical triumph on the grounds of faith. But the Bible teaches that faith gets you through this life, not that faith gives you a celebrity life. True Christians believe that life on earth is only in the land of shadows and that the real everlasting life has not yet fully begun. As to the specific issue of pain and suffering, C.S. Lewis, who watched his beloved wife die of cancer, put it this way, quote, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts with our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Well, isn't that so true that when everything's going well, we don't hear so much, but when we're in the midst of pain, God is speaking to Christians through His Word, and God uses pain to teach us and to show us our need for Him. The all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good God allows us to suffer. He ordains that we suffer. He orchestrates suffering so that we might better listen to and trust Him with our lives. God's plan is for us to look to Him and to walk by faith while here on earth, and pain is a sharp, clear tool to achieve this purpose. So yes, bad things happen to good people, but instead of complaining about what we don't feel we deserve, we should be thanking God for giving us what we don't deserve. You see, according to the Bible, there is none good. So when we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, we should pause for a moment and say, are there really any good people? I mean, we all are sinners. And because we're all sinners, we deserve far worse. We deserve hell. So the question we should ask shouldn't necessarily be, why do bad things happen to good people? But why do good things happen to bad people? You and I are bad people. You get that, right? And why, do, why would God be good to us at all? Why does He give us another day at all? Why does He show common grace at all? Why does He save my soul from hell at all? The answer is because He is a good God, and He is all-knowing, and He is all-powerful. And the answer is in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Think of the pain that that caused God and the anguish of His own emotional state. Yes, in one sense, He's immutable, but certainly there's passionability of he feels the loss of his only son dying on the cross, yet he did it for a greater purpose that he would be, his glory would be on display for the world to see. Not that God needed it. He's completely sufficient in his own character and attributes, but he desired to save us and to place his glory on display, and he did so through an act of pain of his own son going to the cross. And so we should ask the question, are you struggling today? Put your hope in God. Are you suffering today? Put your hope in God. Are you in pain and turmoil today? Put your hope in God. And while He may not take away the pain, He will give you pleasure in Him. And while God may not rescue you 
in this life, He will rescue you in the life to come. And while life on earth can be tough, our triumph comes not from comfort, but from the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to give you two truths about trials that will help you learn how to process trials and to grow from them in your life. Two truths about trials, just in the first three verses here in John chapter 9. The first is this, trials in life are inevitable. Trials in life are inevitable. And the first sub-point there, if you are taking notes and want to fill in this blank, simply says, don't be surprised. Trials are inevitable. Don't be surprised. Look at verses 1 and 2. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, again, we're just kind of introducing John 9 this morning, and as we move into this chapter, we're going to study this incredible story of a man born blind and how God used this trial in this man's life to show him Jesus. That's why this man was blind, is so that one day he would see Jesus. And having just finished a day of teaching at the temple, Jesus was moving on to his next opportunity and to his next, uh, his next assignment to minister to somebody. And as verse 1 says, he's just kind of passing by. He's just kind of going through life, kind of walking from one place to another. And as he's passing by, he seemed to stop and to take notice of this blind man, likely a, a beggar there at the temple, being blind in that day did not entitle you to receive unemployment. Being blind in that day would have invited oppression and abuse. Being blind in that day left one hopeless and helpless. But at that moment, as Jesus is passing by, he stops and an incredible thing happened. Sometimes in this life, we're just too busy. Right? Sometimes in this life, we just pass by opportunities as if they didn't even exist. And sometimes in this life, we think that our schedule is more important than other people's problems. That's how we live life. Jesus was not like that. He stopped for little children, and He welcomed them up into His lap. The disciples are like, Lord's too busy to see your child today. And Jesus says, let the children come to me. Jesus was walking through a crowd when there was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years in great anguish and pain, and all she did was reach out and grab the hem of his garment. And what did he do? Did he keep walking? No, no, no. I've got to go somewhere else. I've got somebody else to heal. He stops. Who touched me? He said. Jesus is always available for opportunities. It was the, the other blind man by the name of Bartimaeus who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it seemed like everyone else is just telling him, hush, be quiet. Jesus doesn't have time, and Jesus stops. Bring that man to me. Sometimes we need to stop and just take notice of those around us. Sometimes we need to slow down and consider the opportunities that are right before our eyes. It could be as something as simple as an encouraging word to a neighbor, or it could be giving a, a lending hand to one in need, or it could be offering to pray with your waiter or your waitress who brings you your meal. I mean, just this week, I'm having lunch with a guy, and sometimes I'll uh, have the courage to say, hey, we're about to bless the food. I'd love to pray for you. How could I pray for you today? And as I said that to this young man this week, he stopped in his tracks, and he began to give me some prayer requests, and then he just stood there. And I'm like, hey, bro, you want to pray with us? 
And he's like, you bet I do. And he just stood right there at the table while we just prayed. And we prayed for this man that know Christ. You know, it's just, there's opportunities every day. I mean, every day, maybe the most amazing opportunities are awaiting you in everyday life. You know, I, I love thinking about evangelism programs and what we could do to better reach our valley. The best way we could reach our valley is you every moment of every day, looking at the example of Christ and just stopping whatever you're doing. Forget your schedule. Forget getting back to work on time. Well, maybe you should do that. But, you know, sometimes you just got to put it in perspective and be like, there are people all over this valley hurting. Now, as I was preparing this sermon on, on a finishing what I was working on on Friday afternoon, I start to drive home, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm about to get on the freeway, and sure enough, I see a lady pushing a grocery cart, kind of limping along, and she's on the street. And I think to myself, I should probably stop for her, but I didn't. I don't always do it. It's not like, you know, I do it every time. Sometimes we're able to do something, and and God shows you his power, and, and there's opportunities, and sometimes we don't. And I'm not saying you should feel guilty about all the times you just pass by the people by Walmart, but I am saying, why not stop occasionally? Why not? I mean, if your life is consisting of, I never stop for anyone ever, uh uh-uh, then there's a problem with you, right? That's not our Lord. And neither am I saying that you literally have to help every single person that you see, or you'll never get to anywhere, right? But I'm just saying, why not be sensitive to what we see in Scripture and what you sense in your own life? We're told that this man was born blind from birth. It seemed like that was common knowledge to all of those that were there. Everybody seems to be aware that this man had been there in Jerusalem for some time. He'd been there a long time. He was an older man. He wasn't just a young boy. And it appears that it was just that this man was just born this way. And, and you could see that this, this handicap was just a part of this man's life. And the Bible tells us, again, that trials are inevitable. It's just part of the world that we live in. You will see handicapped people with special needs, and it's just the world that we live in. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, whether it's seeing somebody who has a physical need or the trials that come in our life that are inevitable, we need to understand that, that the Bible tells us about suffering. And 1 Peter is a book that tells us all about suffering. It's a book of the Bible that teaches us to rejoice in our trials. It's a book that points us to Christ's example of how to trust God in the midst of extreme difficulty. And in 1 Peter 4.12, he writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, in this verse and in this context, Peter is talking specifically about persecution. He's talking about rejoicing insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. But I think the principle still applies. We should never be surprised. In the world that we live in, we should expect things not to go as planned. I mean, welcome to real life, right? Life happens. Air conditioners break. Toilets get clogged. I hate that one. Right? Cars break down, sickness comes, strokes occur, people get fired. People on the freeway will cut you off. We live in Southern California for crying out loud, right? Don't wake up tomorrow headed to work to try to beat the rat race and be like, Could you, did you see what they, I can't, I can't believe these drivers. This day. No, it's going to happen. Okay? It will happen tomorrow. It might happen on your way home from church. All right, don't be so surprised by the trials that come 
in your life. In all of life, learn to expect the unexpected. And in that moment, ask God to help you respond in a way that will grow your character and allow you to be a blessing to someone else. I mean, just yesterday, we got this new contraption at our house. I'm trying to put it together. Lisa was out at something. It's me with the kids, and I'm getting very frustrated. You know, I I don't know about you, but if I have the directions and I don't read them and I can't do something, I have no excuse. But if I've read the directions three times and I still can't figure it out, I start getting upset. Like, who made this thing? And what are they, you know, like, what is wrong with this thing? And I was kind of in that mode where the kids are like, uh, Dad, I'm like, not right now, kids, don't talk to me. And so one of my children says, uh, she was about to eat breakfast, got up just a little bit later, I'm working on this thing. She said, hey, Dad, can I pray? And I'm like, sure, go ahead and pray. You know, just, <laughs> just kind of like right on the edge of, of being a bad person. You know, go ahead and pray. So I'm sitting there working on this thing. She asked a blessing for breakfast and says, Dad, I mean, uh, God, would you just help Dad, help him get this thing fixed in Jesus' name? And I was just so convicted, right? In that moment, I'm just like, <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, that what I was working on in that next couple of minutes started to work beautifully in that very moment, that here I am, you know, so frustrated about the trials of my life, and God was able to give us a God moment when you can think about, you know what, God's just so kind. I mean, you could say, well, that would have happened anyway, or you finally figured it out, or whatever. No, no, no. God works in you and through you, and even if it didn't get any better, I should have been still convicted about my attitude in that moment, right? We need to ask God to help us glorify Him in that moment, and understand that there is nothing strange happening to you. This is all part of God's plan. That's the beauty of being a Christian. Even if your whole day gets unraveled, you can say, you know what? God was in that, and God was in that, and God was doing that, and He was doing that, and we have an opportunity, instead of being surprised, just to expect it. Expect those moments to come. Ask God to help you in that moment to glorify Him. And not only should we not be surprised, but the second point I want to make to you this morning is this. Don't make assumptions. Don't make assumptions. Now, diving back into John 9 here, again, there's this man that's blind. He's blind from birth. And then look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I want to just caution us as we say don't make assumptions that you wouldn't act like you know what's going on. Maybe you are completely clueless and don't limit your understanding to a logical fallacy thinking that it has to be either this or that. It's got to be either one or the other. That's what the disciples are doing. Why is this man blind? Well, it must have been his sin or his parents' sin. That must be it. So which one is it, Lord? Leave room. For God to teach you in a way that maybe you didn't expect as he glorifies himself through this particular trial. And here are Jesus' disciples making this assumption that this man was born blind for one of these two reasons. Either because of his sin or his parents' sin. This is, a, in their mind, a theological dilemma. And it was a popular Jewish doctrine that anyone's problems must be a result of their sin, especially if there was a physical infirmity. One of the best known ones was if you were a barren woman and you didn't have children, since children are a blessing, you don't have them, must be something bad in your life. Today, our culture may be more inclined to think of it as karma. As Christians, we don't buy into karma at all, but it seems to be getting popular in the culture. What goes around comes around, right? So how are we to think of this biblically? Did this man, was he blind because of his sin? 
or his parents sin. You might even ask how in the world could the disciples think for one minute that this man had some fault since he was born this way. Well, in their reckoning, according to Jewish thought, it was possible, according to some, that a baby could sin while still in the womb. The Bible does say that we were all born in iniquity, but it never says that we can sin while still in the womb. So how did some Jewish scholars think that it was possible for a human being to sin while still in the womb? Well, some Jews would implicate the baby was guilty while in the womb if his mother were to worship at a pagan temple before the baby was to be born. So that was one thought. If your mom has ever worshipped in a pagan temple while she was pregnant, then you are guilty of sin even though you were a baby in the womb. Another one was the idea that a baby could sin in the womb comes from a Jewish rabbi who taught that Esau sinned while in the womb. You remember Genesis 25? Turn there with me if you will. This is where some rabbis get this thought. Genesis chapter 25 talks about how Isaac had married Rebekah. Rebekah was with child. And then we read this, Genesis 25, 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So she's pregnant. She's large with child. She may not have known she had twins. They didn't have ultrasound. So she's having all this movement in her womb. She's like, what is going on, Lord? Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's hill, so his name was called Jacob. Remember that story? So some rabbis said, said this of Esau, he was trying to kill Jacob while in the womb. I mean, brothers fight outside of the womb, but these brothers were going at it in the womb. And while they were in the womb, they say that Esau was definitely trying to kill Jacob because he knew what Jacob was going to do to him. And so it's possible that if that were true, which by the way, I don't give any credence to, I'm just telling you what some Jewish rabbis taught to why it is that these disciples are saying to this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in this situation in John 9, did this man sin? Is that why he's blind? Because that was part of their thinking, that maybe he sinned somehow in the womb. Maybe, maybe he was doing something in the womb that would have caused him to be guilty of his own sin, and then the Lord caused him to be blind. Another thought to this, just strictly biology, would be some would say, well, if the, if the, it, it, maybe it was this man's sin or his parent's sin, right? That's the whole second thought. If it's not his sin, then the second thought is it must have been his parents' sin. And maybe the parent, as I already mentioned, went to the pagan temple. Maybe the parent somehow did something so negative that God's cursing that parent by uh, causing the child to be blind. And one thought on that would be, I mentioned biological, and that would be simply the idea that, that uh, if the woman had contracted an STD, such as gonorrhea, that as the baby passed through the birth canal, it could have had that bacteria in his eyes and caused him to be blind. Right? So that's one thought that's going on. Another thought, you just say, well, what else is there that would send the parent cause the child to go blind? Well, how about turning to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus 20, you'll know this well when you see it, but there in the chapter in the Bible teaching us on the Ten Commandments, after the second commandment, thou shalt have no graven image. 
You won't have anything, any idol carved before me. We read right after that commandment, we read this, Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, an idol, carved image, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So there we see there's some type of connection where God says, look, don't commit this sin, and if you do, it's going to be passed down to the second, the third, and even the fourth generation. Turn to Exodus 34, verse 7, Exodus 34, 7, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what are we to think about those two passages? And I remember hearing those when I was growing up as a child. I remember the preacher saying, watch out for sin because you're going to pass it down to your children and your children's children to the third and fourth generation. I remember hearing that. It was kind of like, you know, a, a startling thought of like, oh my goodness, if I get wrapped up in some sin, then that means my kids will struggle and my kids' kids will struggle. And the way that fleshes out today are people are like, well, I'm always angry because I had an angry father, or I'm a drunk because my parents drink alcohol, or the reason that it's like this way in my family is it's just genetic, and it's also spiritual genes that I've received from my mom and dad. And there's this, this lie that some Christians believe that somehow there's nothing you can do about it, that you can't break this generational curse. I'm here to tell you today, yes, you can. And it's not you. Right? It's Christ in you. The gospel breaks the curse of sin. And it doesn't matter if your mom was a drunk and your dad was a drug dealer. Right? It doesn't matter if your mom was a yeller and your dad was a cheater. And it doesn't matter if your mom was selfish and your dad spent all the family's money on himself. Because of Jesus, you can be different. Because of Christ, you can be changed. Because of Christ, you can be made brand new. So don't buy into the psychology or in some charismatic churches that would teach, oh, it goes down to the third and fourth generation. Just say, "Uh, uh-uh-uh, I got Jesus, baby. It stops right here. It stops right now. Through Christ, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Christ has broken the penalty of sin. Christ has broken the pleasure of sin. A true Christian has a true nature and is no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ. I mean, are you a Christian or not? Then understand that you don't have to say it's because of the sins of my parents. That's an excuse. In Christ, you are an overcomer. There may be a tendency for children to follow their parents into sin, but this is more of an observation than an absolute because the gospel changes everything. And the scriptures, by the way, clarify that. Look at Deuteronomy 24.16, just to balance those two verses we read out of Exodus with greater clarity from the scripture itself, the same author here in Deuteronomy, Moses. So Deuteronomy 24.16, he writes this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. What we're reading here is that each person dies for his own sin. A child will not be put to death because of his parent's sin. A parent will not be put to death because of his child's sin. 
you're responsible for your own life. It's Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, that says a similar thing. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Again, we're saying that subsequent generations may, to some degree, suffer in a general way, because sin does have consequences. So, I would say in a national way for Israel, or in a general way, of course, someone who's in a family that's been filled with unbelievers, filled with sin, and being dominated with evil their whole life, those kids and grandkids, in a sense, could suffer in a general way. I'm just saying, don't use that as an excuse to say, therefore, I've got to return to the vomit of the sin itself. You can be free in Christ. The culpability lies with each person. We have to understand here that we're free from sin in Christ. And so the idea that God would strike the son with blindness based on the parent's sin simply isn't biblical. Now you say, wait a minute, Adam. Just a second before you move on, I want you to clarify one more thing. There are specific examples of diseases and death in the Bible contingent on sin. Numbers chapter 12 is the story of Miriam being stricken with leprosy for rebelling against Moses' authority. She sinned, and God struck her with leprosy. What say you about that? There is the story of Gehazi in 2 Kings 5 being overcome with greed and he lied to Elisha and he also contracted leprosy. There is the story in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and they died in church on that given day. There is the story or the teaching rather of 1 Corinthians 11 of some have died for taking communion in an unworthy manner. So according to the Bible, sin can lead to sickness and even to death. I mean, what are you going to say about someone who's a drunk who gets cirrhosis of the liver? Are you telling me those aren't connected? Well, of course they're connected. So here's the deal. You can't assume that you know that. When it comes to general things, a congenital defect at birth, someone gets a terminal illness, someone dies in a car crash, you cannot start assuming, well, I guess he got what he had coming to him. Uh Uh-uh. Don't you dare respond that way. We respond in a way that says, you know what? All I know is that God is at work in a special way to bring perspective, grace, and glory in the midst of heartache and pain. Don't ever try to think that you know why they're going through that problem or to hint for one second that it's because of their sin or their parents' sin. You have no right to ever tell someone that a certain disease or handicap is based on their sin. But here's what you can do. You can look to God. You can cry out to God. And you can be comforted in the fact that God knows our hurt and He knows our pain. And He's right there to walk us through it all. Listen to me this morning. Trials are inevitable, but don't make assumptions about why they are there. You have to trust God that He put them there so that you can see Jesus in a special way that you would have never seen Him before. 
You didn't have the trial. You would have never seen him. And that's what this story is about because the answer that Christ gives is in verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not this man, this man sinned. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know what Jesus is saying? Y'all got it all wrong. I got something new to tell you. And that's what I want to talk to you about next week, is that we wouldn't limit, again, our thoughts about what pain and suffering is really about, that we would said, open up our hearts, our minds to the scripture where Jesus is saying, it's not that, it's not that, I got something brand new. I want to show you something glorious. I want you to see me in a way that you've never seen me before, because pain is a tool in God's hands to show us Christ. And so the question we should be asking is not, again, why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Something good's going to happen to this man. We're going to read about it and look at it in greater detail next week. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to dive into John chapter 9 and just kind of getting started, Lord. We're so excited about what you're going to teach us as we read this familiar account of this man born blind. And I just pray that what we've learned already today, God, that we would stop this week and see those opportunities around us where people are hurting and in pain, that we would stop and pause and see if we can't lend a helping hand, to see if we can't pray with someone who's down, to see if we can't look to evangelize and to just be genuine help for someone in great need. Would you raise up stories of faithfulness, of people stopping their schedule this week and reaching out to the lost and to the downcast? I pray as well, God, that we would already be thinking about the fact that our greatest pain and heartache, for this man it was his blindness, and for us, whatever that's been in our life, would you show us Christ in the midst of it? Would we seek to learn what you want us to learn from this story of the man born blind who we will see received his sight What a beautiful story of each one of us dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet you make us alive for those who see Christ. God, may you help us to learn these truths from your word, to apply them in our life, and I pray that this week you would do great things for your glory as we consider this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.